I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is Episode 7, Fletcher Pratt's The Blue Star. And uh, I'm Jeff, and with me is Hoy. Hello. Glad to see you all again. Good to see you. So The Blue Star was first published in 1952 in a collection of stories called Witches 3. Hoy, can you tell us about this? Yeah, it was a hardcover. So this is the only hardcover uh, publication of The Blue Star up to that point. And there was a Fritz Leiber story, uh, Conjure Darkness, and a James Blish story, whose title uh, eludes me right now. Um, And then basically this book was obscure until the late 60s, um, possibly because Fletcher Pratt died, you know, too early uh, in 1959. I think at that point he was about 55. But then Lynn Carter uh, picked it up as the first book for the Ballantine Adult Fantasy series. Uh, with a kind of hipster, a hippie freakout uh, Ron Wolotsky cover. Um, <laughs> it's actually a quite lovely cover, but I don't think it says much about what's going on in the book, frankly. The copy I have, my reading copy, is the 1975 printing with a Daryl Sweet cover, which is much more informative as to what's actually happening in the story, but kind of more vanilla fantasy, I guess. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, you want to read the uh, back cover copy and let us know what this book's all about? This book breaks with the quasi-medieval setting of adult fantasy. Its atmosphere is civilized rather than heroic. Although there is peril and daring-do aplenty, which suits well the ingenious treatment of magic and the insightful treatment of the very human characters who populate the story. Paul Anderson. His writing is full of novel conceits, flashes of wit, and interesting turns of phrase. The setting of the blue star is lush and vivid. Every casual piece of conversation throws out a flash in rich detail. There are subtle disputes about morals, politics, religion, everything under the sun. Else break to camp. Huh. Now, the uh, Ballantyne 75 printing, uh, at this point, the Ballantyne adult fantasy series was um, been, had been phased out. This one tries to sell it much more as a, you know, heroic fantasy. The Power of the Blue Star. Lalette Asterhax could not escape her destiny. She was a hereditary witch in a world where witchcraft was banned by ecclesiastical and temporal powers. And any man who possessed her would then gain possession of her precious blue star and all the powers it could bestow. Rodvard Bergerlin was a reluctant revolutionary, a rogue who had a date with destiny. Although he lusted after a rich baron's daughter, Rodvard was ordered to seduce the saucy witch maiden. (laughs) Then all the magical powers of that strange jewel be his, for as long as he remained faithful to Lalette. And then there's a Damon Knight blurb, a magnificent job of writing, a gem-perfect example of a branch of pure fantasy so rare nowadays. That sounds really exciting, and I would love to read that book. Unfortunately, (laughs) that's not the book that I read. Uh, I would tend to agree with you. (laughs) But before we get into that, let's quickly go into our Hygaxian word of the day. And our word of today is... Pellucid. Pellucid. And that word is found in a sentence that I think really encapsulates what the experience of actually reading this book is like. A futile thing to do, he told himself, wishing he had Dr. Remagorius's philosophy, who often spoke of how a man could be complete in himself, 
since each one lives in a self-built cell of pellucid glass and may touch another only with, not through, that veil. <sighs> oh. Eh. oh, I'm sorry. Anyways. Uh, but yes, so pellucid as our word of the day. And I, I uh, after our pellucidar episode, I just thought it would also be fun to include that as our word. And there you Fine. Go. I give in. Pellucidar. <laughs> Well, you win, Hoy. I gotta win sometimes. You, you know, win. After you kill all my characters at the table, I gotta win at least once. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, going into the library, I guess, there are some very obvious questions here. Why is this on the Appendix N? Why is this the very first series in Lynn Carter's curated uh, adult fantasy series for Valentine? There are a lot of questions that I, I, I have about why this so book many questions. appears to be on so many um, really important lists. Uh, and, and specifically in the Appendix N, you know, it's not that we didn't read this story because in the Appendix N it just says Fletcher Pratt. And the implication is we can just go out and read what we want. It says Fletcher Pratt, the blue star in all caps, followed by et al. So it's saying read the blue star... And if you want to check out his other stuff, go for it, because it's all good. But it, Guy Gax is specifically telling us to read the Blue Star. Yeah, I do not see the heroic fantasy, what they're trying to sell it as, certainly. Yeah, because the back of that description makes it sound very heroic. But, but Hoy, what, what actually is this story? Like, what, what, what is this story kind of basically about, and what's the atmosphere of it like? To me, it really has a sort of early romantic period mm-hmm. feel of the, you know, early 19th century. The setting is sort of a fictionalized Middle Europa kind of feel, you know, Austria or, you know, Czechoslovakia in the early 19th century or up to, you know, the revolutions of 1848 or something like that. You know, I mean, it is an alternate world. Basically, the the sort of framing device they have is sort of three academics hanging around talking about what if, what would a, a system of magic be? What would be, you know, one change and what would be the logical society that would grow out of it? And then they all have this go to bed after having too much wine and cheese, and then they have this dream, which becomes the whole novel. A shared dream. A shared dream. And the uh, three of them don't seem to be particularly intrigued by or freaked out by the fact that they all had the same dream when, they, when they chat the next day in the final portion of the the um, the framing device. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I guess, you know, I was interested to read this book uh, for a couple of reasons, because obviously, A, it was called out so strongly, and then also because... You know, uh, Fletcher Pratt is so indelibly linked with Elspreth de Camp, so it was interesting to see who brought what to the table. Yes. In that in that sense. I would say that the prose is quite good, but this book actually took me the longest out of the books we've read so far. It took me about a month to read, not because it takes me an actual month to read this book. It's not that dense or complex. It just kind of... Or long. Or long, for that matter. I mean, my copy is 240 pages. It just seemed to sort of skate off of it. Part of that is the style is sort of elusive. So a lot of times he sort of describes around things that happen. He sort of maybe glances away and you know something happened and the the characters are reacting. A lot of it almost seems like a sort of stream of consciousness, although it's not written in that style of Lalette's stream of consciousness or Rod Vard's. They're both characters who seem kind of uh, persecuted in their own minds. Uh, but anyway, the basic premise of this is there's really only one fantastical element in this world, which is this uh, ha- certain number of women come from a line of uh, witches. Mm-hmm. And basically it follows the, the matrilineal line, but as soon as the daughter inherits her mother's powers, as soon as she loses her virginity. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, each family has a secret jam, blue jam, that they then give to the male lover who took the virginity, and he has now the power to basically read minds, essentially. Yes. 
as long as he stays faithful to his lover. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the very beginning, we see Lalette. She's quite unhappy because she knows she's going to be forced into an arranged marriage because you know, it's very desirable for powerful people to have a witch in their family to you know advance their agendas. And then we switch over to Rodvard, who's basically a minor bureaucrat who's actually in a revolutionary cell, and he's been ordered to go and find a witch and seduce her in order to gain this power of the Blue Star. So the setup is not bad, but again, it's ultimately they seem to be very sort of passive and they're just responding. They're buffeted by fate and all the things that happen around them. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a few nods to... It's more, it's more a story of intrigue than a story of high adventure. It is. Yeah. And although they do go on multiple journeys and face multiple foes, even in those moments, it never really feels like adventure or high fantasy. Even when they're on, uh, on great ship, uh, on great journeys over the seas, or when they're kidnapped by witches or whatever, like it still never, never somehow seems to have that kind of adventurous feel to it. And I think part of that is they never actually rise to adventure. That's uh, true. That's a good point. You know, Bilbo Baggins in The Hobbit, for all his, uh, you know, proclamations about not wanting to be on an adventure and missing his breakfast or whatever, he rises to adventure mm-hmm. and becomes invaluable. Uh, here, there's, you know, there's a relationship drama and they became to understand each other more and they're put, again, as you say, put in quite perilous situations, but they never break out of that initial shell or sense of persecution that they have at the beginning. Um, and also, you don't really, you know, they talk about the magic, and, and it does have effects, but they seem to be kind of rather subtle, other than the mind-reading part. I mean, Lalette, you know, basically commands a man who's, you know, molesting her on the ship to basically drown himself. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's no fireballs, there's no weirdo causing people to sprout horns from their heads mm-hmm. or anything like that. So it is actually quite subtle. And... Um, you know, I, I notice a lot of the, there's a lot of parenthetical sentences. They're talking about something, and then they'll insert a parenthetical thought that they're how they're responding to a certain situation. So, again, I feel it maybe is more closely related to sort of uh, you know 19th century sort of romantic you know melodramas in a sense than what we consider fantasy or high fantasy. And really, it's just one fantastic element, which is this the witchcraft. And there's yeah. not not a lot of um, you know more to discover in that sense. Uh, there are some interesting. Um, creations of the societies in here um but they're not so far afield and i mean um there's that cult of love which seems kind of more like a gnostic kind of cult Mm -hmm. um that when they escape to the east and again they never fully detail they sort of talk around it and it's maybe the experience you would have i guess as any person in sort of nominally in a religion maybe they don't know all the theology and all the underpinnings um and so these people are in the society and they're being, you know, in a revolutionary society and things are happening, but they don't really seem to understand their society beyond any average person would be, you know, again, being buffeted by the forces of fate. So, so yeah, it seems strangely passive for a, you know, alleged high fantasy. And one of the things that I thought was interesting about reading this, too, is depictions of gender and sexuality in this, in this story was really fascinating to me. First off, I've not yet encountered any reference to any kind of homosexuality in any of our appendix and readings so far. But there are two references to homosexuality in The Blue Star. The first is at one point when Rodvard gets the ability to read the minds of people. He is in a carriage and he picks up on the thoughts of a, of a, of a woman who's feeling feelings of attraction towards another woman. And it's brought up, it goes by, it's not judged. It's not. It's just presented as a fact. That's one of the one of the thoughts that he overhears, and then later on, when Rodvard 
is on the pirate ship going across the sea, the pirate captain tries to rape him. And on one hand, like, of course, it's nobody should be raped. And whether it's no matter what your gender is or the gender of the perpetrator, uh, rape is always a bad thing. But one thing that was particularly interesting about this is uh, the captain who was who was trying to, um, or maybe rape's a hard word, like molest him. I don't know. He he was he was he was trying to sexually coerce him at he the very least. Basically, taking it as his due in order to provide passage for Rivar. Absolutely. Uh, but what was interesting though is that there's like a cabin boy who regularly was doing that service for the captain, and Rodvard picks up feelings of jealousy from that character. So um, there is a very kind of uh, normalizing description of homosexuality in the Blue Star, which I found very surprising for something written in 1952. And even to the point where when the, when the pirate captain is on trial later, because at one point the pirate captain is claiming that Rodvard tried to uh, create mutiny on his ship, when Rodvard tries to accuse the pirate captain of... Uh, of his unnatural desires toward him or whatever, even the people who are on, on the, the jury or whatever, uh, they're saying that like there's nothing unnatural in love or something like that. So it's, it's really interesting to me because I've not seen anything like that in any of our appendix and reading or really in any fiction from this era. So that seems pretty radical. But then on the flip side of that, it has a very strange way of dealing with women because Ultimately, the real power here comes from, theoretically comes from the woman and comes from her, her birthright and this power that she, uh, that she ends up getting when she loses her virginity and bestows upon another man when he takes her virginity. Uh, but ultimately, the framing device here is three men who are kind of thinking about this world. And then a lot of our journey is spent following Rodvard, not following Lalette. And Lalette is really just kind of like tossed around from from kind of scene to scene. She has a lot less agency than Rodvar does. And on one hand, you could argue that this could be Fletcher Pratt trying to make a statement about kind of a patriarchal society and how in any kind of a world where the woman really does have the magic, they're going to systematically try to... Deny her. Deny her and keep yeah. her down and yeah. keep her in her place. Yeah. You could argue that that's possibly what's going on here. But if that's true, it's so subtle that it makes it not entirely clear if that is the message of the story or if kind of in Fletcher Pratt's naivete, he created a world where women have the power, but in his expression of it, they really don't have any. Hmm, yeah, that is a good question. I... I um... I wouldn't underestimate Fletcher Pratt. And again, I, I mentioned that a lot of the, even the sentence structure, a lot of times they sort of slide off of subjects and are allusive and, and therefore become elusive. Elusive. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm going to just keep on tripping over what we're talking about, this, the three words there. Uh, but Is you it know, possibly unlusive? Uh, yeah, maybe it's, it's certainly not collusive. <laughs> uh, so, um, but, I mean, he was a you know, well-regarded intellectual, you know, in New York in the 30s and 40s, 50s. He was a well-known historian. He created um, one of the sort of first popular naval war games, which is, I think, is still available probably through small press or specialized print. You know, in many ways was known for his uh, historical work rather than his fiction. Most of his fiction, he only had a relatively small body of solo fiction. And then he did, you know, a fair amount more with Elsberg de Camp. But I think he's got less than 10 novels and maybe a couple collections of short stories. Um, whereas he has quite a number of um, 
history books, and some of which are also in print, histories of the Civil War and the War of 1812. So I don't think he's not, I don't, he doesn't strike me as, or at least through his fiction, he doesn't strike me as someone who's um, not self-aware. I mean, we all have our blind spots, but he doesn't strike me as someone who's not self-aware. And we all know sometimes people are just clumsy and, and, and try to do something and then end up doing the exact opposite. But it still then begs the question of what is he trying to do? And I don't know. I, I think it's um, open for interpretation. Yeah, um, of you, course. You mentioned the, um, you know, the depictions of homosexuality. Again, you know, I mean, this certainly is pre-Stonewall. And I don't claim to be an expert on, you know, the history of, you know, gay rights and stuff like that. But it would not have been unusual, again, if you were moving sort of intellectual circles in New York, uh, you know, in the 40s and 50s to, you know, at least acknowledge the existence of a homosexual community even if it was not you know out in public yeah so i don't think that would have been unusual and that's and i think that's done really well in the story too because it's not in the public you know it's in the private thoughts of a woman in a carriage who's not even acting on them and it's secretly happening you know on this ship in a in an area where women aren't even a part of their universe right right um so i mean i think there's a lot here i just don't know that it's D and Dable, so to yeah. speak. <laughs> totally. And before we get into the the D and D ability of it, um, I guess maybe the first thing that we might want to ask ourselves here is, you know, you, you pointed out that this is the first in the Ballantine adult fiction series uh, that Lynn Carter curated. I guess one thing we can ask ourselves is why do we feel like he chose this story to start that series off with? I mean, because this this series in general has a ton of the Appendix N stories. Sure, sure. I can see two things. Uh, One of which is I think the mandate for the Valentine Adult Fantasy series was to sort of rediscover sort of semi-lost works. And this Mm -hmm. essentially had not been in print for 16 years by the point it was republished. And this was the first public... Uh, paperback publication, for that matter. So that was one of the mandates. Uh, Lynn Carter, of course, was also quite close with Elspark DeCamp. So maybe DeCamp had some input and said, hey, you know, you really should put this book out there yeah. as part of the part of the series. And, you know, there's quite a number of other books that are, again, not obvious to us. I mean, certainly there's major appendix N ones, but there's certainly a lot of sort of Victorian, you know, I think William Morris and mm-hmm. a couple others, which, again, are not heroic fiction. They're fantasy in the sense that they are not in and of our world. Yes. But again, and magic exists. And, magic and in exists. that sense, this is definitely a fantasy novel. Right. The description is certainly not extruded, you know, generic, you know, high fantasy. Yeah. Um, it basically means that anything that is not real mm-hmm. at that point. So I think that, you know, I think he had a pretty broad mandate. Uh, why, again, he picked this particular book, I don't know, but... Obviously, it was successful enough to, for the series to continue, and they yeah. ultimately published, I think, um, 65 books that were officially part of the series, and there was, a few, I think, 10 books that were precursors, and then a few other books that were meant for the series that were mm-hmm. also then published uh, afterwards, after the Ballantine Adult Fantasy series had been, you know, canceled. It was never hugely successful, um, and that may have also been a change of publishing hand. Uh, publishing houses or editors and something like that. I would have to go back and, and look at that again. But I do believe, like, for example, that Ballantyne was acquired by, I think, Random House mm-hmm. towards the end of the series, and so they weren't as interested in something that was a little bit harder to pin down. Mm-hmm. And certainly by this time, Tolkien and all the heroic, uh, you know, the Swords and Sorcery stuff was had been well-established by this point, you know, the yeah. Lancer series, the Tolkien. And so that this is a little harder to pin down. It was not easy reading. I remember when I was trying to pick up fantasy in the late 70s and early 80s. So I was looking for all this stuff. But the ones that were the Ballantine at all fantasy ones were definitely, like, I, I skated off of them. You know, the language yeah. was too 
you know, Baroque or, mm-hmm. or, or, or um, uh, the subject matter too subtle or too mature, you know, yeah. from, you know, it wasn't, you know, hobbits with short swords mm-hmm. and, you know, it wasn't, you know, post-Tolkien, again, generic high fantasy. It was, yeah. it was definitely something older. Now I think I'm in a better position to appreciate that, but the irony is then again that these are not much harder to find in print, although some of the stuff is in public domain and starting to come out. For that matter, uh, Blue Star, ever since the 1981 printing, it's been out of print. And then recently, Wildside Press, which is a smaller press that brings back a lot of sort of Finnish fantasy, um, had a 2008 printing. So it's available as a trade paperback. With a terrible oh, cover. Horrible, horrible, oh. horrible photo cover. It's so bad. It's the worst. It's really the worst. But it's probably... So, in fact, you might actually be able to have a better chance of finding a good used copy of maybe, if not the Valentine Adult Fantasy one, the the 75 or the 81 printings rather than buying the current trade paperback. Yeah, yeah, the current trade paperback makes it look like it's a story about a woman who works at the mall Wiccan shop right. who's like, you know, selling some incense or something. Right, right. Um, but one thing I'd, I'd like to add on to the conversation about it being the first in the Ballantine series, uh, tying that into what I was saying before about like the secret homosexual thoughts, there was probably something very exciting to the people who were reading fantasy at the time about this story in the, in, in the sense that like a lot of fantasy was um, C.S. Lewis, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. And a lot of it was very kind of, uh, very innocent. And you weren't, you weren't hearing um, the secret homosexual thoughts of hobbits. You weren't uh, going into the um, prostitution enclaves in Rivendell. Because, like, in this, like, uh, Lalette ends up being, uh, like, they, they go to the land where the god of love is. Right, all the women uh, basically have to be temple prostitutes at some point in their career. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, who doesn't want to go to the place where the land of, where the god of love is in charge? It sounds like a really wonderful, spiritually enlightened place. But instead, she gets there and she's basically forced into prostitution. And when she's unwilling to have sex with strangers, she ends up basically going on trial. Things get very complicated for her. But I think the very fact that you've got those that kind of subject matter in a fantasy fiction story and presented in and 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 not presented in a really kind of like wild exploitive way, presented in a very kind of matter of fact subtle way, I imagine must have been very exciting for the readers at the time. Uh, much like when I was a kid. Things like Beavis and Butthead and South Park were getting really big. The idea that there were cartoons that were like swearing and like saying really bad things. Not that this is being anywhere near as like outrageous right, right. This as is like not South Park transgressive is. as such. But. Absolutely, but just the very fact that something that I associate with kind of like childhood innocence is having kind of adult themes explored in it was very exciting to me when I was 10 and South Park was coming out. Much like I imagine it was probably very exciting to people like Lynn Carter when they were trying to um, make the idea of adult fantasy more palatable. They're finding these stories that were written decades previously that were doing what they're doing in different and interesting ways. Yes, yeah, certainly. And, and I th- certainly um, the voices seem much more uh, individual in the his selection and maybe in that era. And nowadays, I think, you know, again, we've talked over and over about this to a certain extent, how a lot of fantasy is workshopped in sort of like Clarion Writers Workshop or Iowa Workshop or it's self-referential. And, um, and these a lot of times are maybe, I don't want to use the word outsider art or naive art, but they're really very individual in that sense and, and, and are not necessarily informed by sort of necessarily current 
what were then concurrent literary tropes. A lot of these, of course, refer back to older fiction. Again, as I mentioned, you know, 19th century romantic fiction or just even early 20th century sort of fantasy that, again, James Branch Cabell. I mean, I'm not saying that he's a direct influence. I haven't read any Cabell yet, but people like that, um, William Morris. So, again, we're talking about sort of very um, individual, personal work, but that would also speak to, again, if you had never, you know, you were like, oh, I always wanted to know what it means, you know, I feel outside or oppressed or whatever, and and this suddenly to see this, say, oh, wow, that's really exciting. Someone else understands or sees something, you know, in the world. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, and, um, but again, it doesn't take that other step of then, uh, you know, that call to adventure. There's no call to adventure, I I feel like, in this book. Yeah, because what you really have here are essentially two kids who are being manipulated into um, acting as governmental forces because they have access to powers. And they're either, we, we, we go back and forth between scenes of them being manipulated and doing things that they don't even realize that they're really kind of doing, and then running away from situations where they're in trouble and they're trying to save their butts. But but never are they kind of going forth seeking something specifically that they want for their own uh, enrichment or enlightenment or or for a better life for themselves. Right. And they they reach an accommodation with each other, realizing that as imperfect as the world is and as imperfect as they are for each other, they're, they're in some senses the best that they can do for each other. Yeah. Um, so that's either very sad or very mature. I'm not sure. Maybe both. Again, but not necessarily what you're expecting from, again, quote-unquote, fantasy. Yeah. Sort of the literary and how we might respond to it. And again, maybe what, how you take this book is how you approach it or why you approach it. So again, if you were thinking about this as we were initially as an appendix and d and work, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, I don't know what this is. But if you were coming at it from some other angle, you might say, oh, this is a very rich book that's, you know, that's got a lot going on under the surface. Yeah. Um, so. so I think that's a really great segue into the question of why do we think Gary Gygax cited this specific book as something to read? Yeah, to be honest, I don't know. I mean, you don't see that much of the magic. Um, there's a little bit of, I think there's the uh, sort of... Um, the swordsman that sort of is hot on Lolette towards the end, who is part of the revolutionary group, and is the guy who sort of brings her back, her and Rodvar back to their their home country. And there's, you know, this talk of war and stuff like that. But it's really not. It's not. There's not a lot of sword play. There's a lot of intrigue, but it's not a lot of sword play. Yeah. Um, the magic system, other than the actual premise of the magic, is not particularly well defined. Not yeah. certainly not in the sense that uh, you know, fancy and magic is defined, or even what Fletcher Pratt and Elspeth de Camp did in, you know, the mathematics of magic in terms of presenting a magic system. I don't want to say just because it was available. That, I don't think that's the right answer, although yeah. it certainly was available at that time and, and it seems to have been popular enough to go through, you know, three printings once it reached paperback, you know, to be honest. Because uh, there were plenty of notable things that were available that were excluded. Right, right. I mean, I do think it is unique. Um, it's not... Uh, you know, a third-generation Conan copy. It's mm-hmm. not um, Shannara, you know, Tolkien ripoff. Yeah. So in that sense, it has its own voice and its own world. Um, but, you know, D&D never seemed to take much from sort of 19th century Europe in the yeah. sense. Um, yeah, I really, uh, honestly, not exactly sure. Yeah, and I'm, I might be going on a stretch here, uh, but if I were to guess why Gary included this, um, maybe one of the things could be the idea that like fantasy doesn't have to be kid stuff. Sure. You know, sure. like you can bring 
elevated adult themes to your fantasy. You can bring complex character motivations to your fantasy. Um, also, you know, you mentioned there's a lot of intrigue. And while while high political intrigue is not something I have been particularly interested in as, as a style of play in D&D, it's certainly a style that some people find very exciting. Sure, the and domain ve- game. And, yeah, absolutely. Building your castle. And, yeah. and I know that people who've gotten really into the Forgotten Realms, for example, really get into what the Harpers are doing with the red whatevers. I, I don't know. Uh, that's, my, uh, that's my sort of a black hole year of D&D. But certainly I know, for example, Adventure Conqueror King system is all about the, you know, getting to the domain level yeah. and, and, you know, carving out, you know, But major feet. factions who have, like, yeah. desires and wants yeah. and they're, they're forcing you to do things or you can align with them. Right. Those kinds of kind of larger moving pieces as kind of, political forces within a kingdom, I think is potentially one of the other reasons why right. it may have been included. Um, we know that people have observed that there's this thing is called a Gygaxian naturalism. Um, so in a sense, idea. The, his idea was that a world should have sort of a, uh, well, this is people observing this from Gary Gygax's. I don't think he ever, uh, Gary Gygax's work, I don't think he ever explicitly stated this, but that a world should have a certain amount of internal consistency with okay. not as gonzo as some of the other you know, early D&D play, you know, mm-hmm. certainly by the AD&D period. So, you know, monsters should have an ecology, societies should have sort of a somewhat plausible basis. And so yeah. this is a good depiction of a couple of societies, and they are created sort of from the ground up, these mm-hmm. societies. I mean, to the extent that they may just be carbon copies of, again, mid-19th century European society uh, may or may not be relevant, but they are uh, cohesive societies as they're created in this book, as opposed to just here's the re- generic fantasy castle over here with the baron, and here's the men-at-arms, and here's that. Right? So, and they don't exist in a void either. They right. interact with each other and have effects on one another. We're constantly uh, teased with the idea of the Green Islands, which right. is like, you know, where, where those are the barbaric Green Islands. And we never actually see the Green Islands. But although um, there's the we keep hearing about the Green Islands, but we also go back and forth between two um, two large areas of land divided by sea, uh, and these kingdoms absolutely all three the, the Green uh, the Green Islands and these two kingdoms all definitely have major effects on one another. Right. There's like a slave trade between them, and there's like. You know, there's wars between them, and they're constantly trying right. to... people being exiled and trying to come back. Yes. And... Yeah, so in the sense that, you know, we look at, um, I remember having sort of the folio version of the world of uh, Greyhawk, and, you know, he was trying to sort of, again, I mean, if you were really a demographer or something, you might say, oh, no, there's no possible way that these societies could survive. But he was trying to create what seemed like a plausible set of societies, mm-hmm. and, you know, that they were all sort of interlocked geographically and yeah. they had effects on each other, as you say. So, um, you know, so maybe it appealed to sort of the world-building aspect of him, and that it was world-building, but it was not Tolkien. Yeah. You know, it was world-building, but it was not the Hyborian Age or Lankmar, you know, so um, the sense that this was a creation that sort of could self-sustain, mm-hmm. in a sense, even though it was only this one book, but yeah. that it had an internal logic and that it... Just because the heroes weren't someplace, society just didn't disappear. Yeah. You know, where some, a lot of times, sometimes you have, uh, and I guess especially in heroic or sword and sorcery fiction, you know, the, the hero strides through, and then basically whatever is not in front of their view doesn't really exist. You know, yeah. and that would be to me more like a western. You know, where you know they have the man with no name or something like that. It seems a very um, you know out of time, out of place. You know, just a, it's just a, a setting for whatever drama is going to happen. Mm-hmm. 
in that scene. Whereas this, you clearly know that there's a world going on all around them at all times. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that would be the appeal. It's like, like I said, I don't want to say it's just because, oh, it was there and it was in print. Because we have to give Gary Guy Guys a lot more credit than that. Ian, uh, you know, we know that Tim Cask, I believe, helped put together this list. I don't know to what extent, you know, the list was divided up or, you know, who recommended what go on the list. Um, we know that Tim Cask was also sort of a... Uh, commissioning short stories for Dragon Magazine. I, I really would love to know his taste and to what extent that reflected what eventually became Appendix N. So that's, uh, yeah, I don't, uh, couldn't quite see. And then the question then becomes, you know, Jeff, like what do you think is d and about this this book? Well, one thing that I would, um, I don't know if this is necessarily d and but I would speak to uh, one thing that I think is interesting about this in relation to role-playing games in general is that the magic system here actually is pretty well defined. It's not necessarily a role playable or a great one for a role playing game, but it is much more defined in this book than it is in a lot of uh, a lot of fantasy books I've read, where like wizards just kind of cast a spell, and then the next time around where that spell would also be really helpful, they don't seem to do it, and it's not clear why. Uh, in sure. this, it's like the uh, Lalette when she casts spells, she does it by drawing symbols. And she needs to have some kind of a way of drawing that symbol. Even if it's her finger in sand or if it's in milk or in blood or in something, she needs to be able to draw these symbols. And the symbols that she's drawing is where the magic comes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's interesting about the the way her... Oh, and also she has to... These don't come from her intuitively. Her mother taught her these symbols. And there's a scene near the end where she's supposed to... Where, where she's discovering that she's supposed to be teaching... This, this this other young girl at some point, the symbols. And she's concerned because she doesn't want her to, that little girl to get raped and whatever. Right, right. Uh, but and this is essentially how she comes into her powers. It's it's seduction, you could call it date rape, but mm-hmm. this is how she comes into her powers. Yeah, right? yeah. sure. And then, uh, so it's, it's, it's the symbol magic, but then what's interesting is in a lot of ways, although Rodvard uh, or... Generally, any man who deflowers the woman, who then has this has this gem and can read the thoughts, in many ways, his, his the power that he has is far stronger than the power that the witch has. Because the witches, they have to be able to create these symbols, and they're limited by what the symbols can do. And in general, society at large is trying to like squash all of this, where with the men, uh, society accepts what the men of the blue stars do. And the blue star's power is always on. If I can see your eyeballs, right. I can see what you're thinking. Right. And it's really as easy as that, and it's always going. And that's way more powerful than you know being able to compel somebody to do... Well, I don't know, maybe being able, I guess being able to compel somebody to do something by drawing a symbol in milk is actually pretty powerful. Uh, but somehow it, it doesn't... The way it's played out in the story, it seems as though Rodvard has much more power than she does. But conversely, he also has to hide it because when people are aware, then they take countermeasures, so to speak, you know. And and he's initially, when he comes into the power, he, he's then sent to be a secretary to some nobleman to this big, essentially, conference or banquet to sort of spy on this stuff. And he has to hide the gem. Um, so but he has to hide it strategically, where strategic. she has to hide hers for survival. Right. Yeah, his is strategic, uh, but certainly, uh, you know, he then can become a threat and then mm-hmm. become a player on the table. And so it it is not always about survival, but it can it cannot also just be 
displayed willy-nilly. Ha, I see yes. into your eyes and I know all about you, right? Yes, yes. So there's still risks, but it's not like, oh, I can, as you say, that I can only use this power so many times a day mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, it causes me this fatigue, you know, this many fatigue points or whatever. But one thing that I do think could be uh, D&Dable in relation to all of this is the Amorosians, who are the ones who worship the god of love, uh, they are unaffected by much witchcraft that's available to them. That's, that's available to be used against them because they have managed to close off their mind with uh, their worship of the God of love. And that's potentially something that could be d and Like, I think it would be really interesting to, in your game, have a group of people who are not affected by a certain kind of magic because they, as a part of their culture, whether they intended to or not, have built up a sort of... Um, response to that right and you wouldn't want it to just be like completely random like oh this particular group doesn't sleep spells don't work on them why because they just don't like you you want it to be tied into into the fiction in some particular way and in this like you know their their minds are particularly strong and uh and and so focused and so protected that they're that it's inaccessible to the people who are trying to read their thoughts but witchcraft that affects their bodies still affect their bodies right right um yeah no i mean i think that's um Again, to sort of, um, you know, put some underpinnings if you're, if you're world building, you know, say, oh, yeah, exactly. You know, this, um, we all know that undead are not affected by sleep spells or whatever. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this society cannot be charmed because they have, you know, strong self-belief. On the other hand, they also can't use, you know, mind control spells because yeah. there's never any use for that in a society and yeah. they, they can't learn them. Um, so, yeah, again, I think the strength of this book would be in ideas about world building rather than a specific mechanic yeah. or... Um... And one thing I think we're learning a lot from the Appendix N uh, is that the, the the idea of like having your cultures all be quite different. You know, in, in, in Thafford and the Grey Mouse or the women of the cold of the cold north, they have their own style of magic. Right. In the Blue Star, the Amorosians have their own style of uh, magic resistance. And in the dying earth, you go from, you know, one place to another and people have these like wildly different cultures and laws and forms of punishment. Like as, 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 as you keep traveling, the, there is no mass communication. There is no Facebook. There's no cell phones. There's no telegraphs. Right. There's no, there's no mail service right. even. So it's possible that like a small range of mountains could be the barrier between two vastly different cultures. Right. Language groups, yeah. cultures. And that's one thing, I, uh, I mean, it's not part of this book speci- specifically, but that's one thing that, you know, at the table with hand-to-hand wave is, you know, language language differences, cultural differences. And again, it's harder in some of the settings that, you know, you and I often play in, which is, you know, a open table, four-hour time slot. Yeah. But certainly I think that if you were running this as a campaign, it would be, you know, maybe more fun to say, you know, there is no common tongue. Yeah. Um, but, you know, anybody who's in this area, for example, might know a smattering of, you know, a trade language, which has elements of both these, where the two cultures meet. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's imperfect. So you can know the trade language, but you would have no fun- no chance of functioning in high society because you don't know the high speech of that of that region. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that that, that is, um, you know, worthwhile. And, and maybe you sort of apply this organically. You don't try to build the world totally, but, you know, whenever a culture or a change of region comes into place, maybe you have a little random table that says, okay, you know, here's the uh, 
the how much the language shifts away from what you know. Mm-hmm. Um, is this a matriarchy? Is this a patriarchy? Is this yeah. a commercial state? Is this a religious state? You know, just something quick to just sort of give yourself, oh, here's where things change. I mean, and what's uh, funny is those tables actually existed in third edition and 3.5. And you could rent, there, there are tables for randomly rolling up towns and you could roll up what kind of a governmental system they had and what the alignment was that was running them and whether it was a monstrous leader that was in control. Uh, so it is actually kind of funny that uh, a, a version of the rules that I don't particularly look at that often actually does do that on some level. Right, right. And, uh, you know, maybe it's not a rule thing, but just certainly as an aid for the GM so that you don't have to create yeah. a society from scratch every single time they cross a river or a mountain range. Yeah. And that gives it different flavor. So it's not all, again, generic uh, you know, Ren Fair or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, fake medieval. Yeah, know. and there's more to a random settlement uh, generation than how many people are there um, and, you know, is there a magic shop, right. you know? Right. <laughs> and my belief is, there's yeah, never this a magic shop. should not be magic shops. <laughs> no, no magic shops. One thing that I did think was neat about this is that, because in, in many ways this is so, this is such a departure from the rest of the Appendix N, um, but there were times where it did overlap uh, here and there. Okay. And one of them is one, one, one of them's one of the ways in which uh, it did this is we often have that theme of like the evil priest. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I thought was neat here is, you know, there, with the people who are reading minds have quickly discovered that um, people in positions of power who are uh, revered as good people are often no better than anyone else and often even worse. And one of the, the sentences I really liked was from page 73. It says, I saw a man in a dungeon once, a murderer, whose thoughts were better than those of the deacon who gave him consolation, which <laughs> I love. Yeah. And I also think uh, is very kind of a, a common concept in Sword and Sorcery and Appendix N that I think plays nicely into our adventuring games as well, which is that people in power are not inherently trustworthy. And in fact, people who pursue power are probably people who, because of the very fact that they are pursuing power, are people who you should be questioning. Uh, That's uh, useful and possibly in real life, but I think you also (laughs) possibly, probably. Possibly, maybe. uh, uh, Although I think you maybe don't want to overplay that because then automatically anytime they come into, players are bad enough as one to murder hobo all the time, that anytime they come into any conflict with any sort of authority yeah. that they treat it as illegitimate or the enemy automatically. Sure. Um, you know, there's always that guy, there's always that player that says, I kill the king! And it's yeah. like, okay, that doesn't make any sense. But, you know, mm-hmm. or that's just going to totally derail the game. Yeah. Um, I, I do think, yes, that, the, again, that the idea that there are always currents underneath. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't have to supply them, you know, for every single non-player character or yeah. every single, uh, but, you know, just keep that in mind. It's like, okay, you know, what's here? And um, here's what presents. And then if the player's like, oh, I'm not sure I trust this guy. So you can either run with it yeah. or make the characters seem even more untrustworthy, even though they actually are trustworthy. Just give you this challenge that you can, you know, can run with. Um, just the same way you were talking about um, in one of our other episodes about, you know, the mystery and the players solving the mystery that wasn't even the, the you know, the villain wasn't even the villain you had set up. But you know, yeah. it's more interesting to run with what they sort of intuited. Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah, and I think in, in in building your NPCs, one interesting question you might want to ask yourself, especially if you're if you're building a good NPC, right. you know, you're you're building a character who is an ally to the party, who is there to help people out. If maybe one of the questions you ask yourself is, if I had the blue star, 
and I could read their thoughts, what thought of theirs would I find disturbing? Right. Because even even the best people with the with the kindest hearts have dark thoughts. You're freaking me right out right now, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> and it would be it would. It, it, and maybe maybe this is um, a deeper level of play than some people want to get into. But if you're looking to really kind of get into your characters, that might be an interesting question to ask yourself in the spirit of the deacon who's got the worst thoughts and the murderer is what are the thoughts that this NPC who currently I'm playing as a super good guy um, may also have that kind of just adds another level of complexity and um, takes you away from black and white and kind of towards right. the gray, which I enjoy. Right. And, and conversely, you could do something in the reverse for a villain. Like, what is the thing that is the redeeming thing that yes. might cause you to say, oh, you know what? We shouldn't kill this guy or we yeah. shouldn't, shouldn't loot this castle. You know, all this gold that he's hoarding here is actually so he can take it back to his homeland for the orphans. And, you know, the yeah. widows and orphans. Yeah, you yeah. Know, so who knows? His, his, his mom is sick and right. she just needs that right. special right. treatment. Right. The mama troll, needs... mama troll has indigestion. Yeah, and, yeah. he just needs to sacrifice 100 virgins to the volcano so that the god can heal his mom from that disease right, right. you know that's totally understandable right. so yeah I think maybe again I think we've kind of sort of nailed it the two things that we're looking at here are world building and role play but yeah. not mechanics as yeah. such in terms of being able to use this for D&D and so maybe you might say well that might be true of all fiction so maybe this book is not unique in that regard but it's here it's on the list or yeah we could certainly look at non-fantastic fiction for that but we have a work of fantastic fiction that is has depth to it, so why not? You know, especially if you weren't normally inclined to read, I don't know, Raymond Carver or F. Scott Fitzgerald. And, and one that, that Gary Gygax specifically recommended that we read. Right, right. So, yeah, and I would certainly say that we're going to have books that we like more or like less, and uh, haven't, we haven't come across any that we've outright hated. Uh, That's true, and I did not outright hate this one. Yeah. It is my least favorite I've read so far. Right. And I think as a completist, you certainly want to write, would want to read it, but I certainly wouldn't put it high, high, high up on my like like first tier of books to read if you were reading an Appendix N. And, you know, we all know that even the sort of uh, most slimmed down reading of Appendix N would probably be well over 40 or 50 books. And I certainly wouldn't mm-hmm. put it in my top 10 or even top 20 if you had limited time. It came up first or relatively early in our list, so here we are. And in fact, I think that's actually a good thing for us because if we were only going to read the books that we thought we were going to like, we would not finish this project. It's there. Uh, If you're reading along with us, certainly pick it up, check it out, let us know what you think. You can... uh, Email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com and let us know. Uh, And speaking of reading along with us, uh, our next episode, episode eight, will be on Philip Jose Farmer's The Maker of Universes. And episode nine will be on Paul Anderson's Three Hearts and Three Lions. Yeah, it's terrific. Oh, by the way, we have a uh, Twitter feed now, right, Jeff? And then what is that? That's right. Uh, You can tweet us at, at appendix underscore n. And also, if you could, uh, please take a moment to, if you're enjoying this podcast, go to iTunes or your podcast app and give us a rating and leave us a review. Uh, Those ratings and those reviews uh, help a lot making our podcast more visible. So it will help us grow our listenership. So um, please, if you can, take a moment to do that. It would be greatly appreciated. I do thank you also. Yes, yes. And I think that's really it for... Episode 7 on Fletcher Pratt's The Blue Star. Thank you so much for listening. Read on. <laughs>